What is going on, y'all? Welcome back to another episode of the Earn Your Good Day podcast, where we have a fundamental belief that people are stronger, more resilient, and far more capable of things than they believe in or believe are even possible. Um, I'm your host, Zach Kanadi. Now, before we go ahead and kick off today's episode, I do have a quick ask for y'all, and that is simply if you find some use or value out of today's episode, that you use it in your everyday life. Uh, That's the whole point of me doing this show is that I wanted to give people the skills and tools that I have used in my own life to overcome a lot of the things I have and to get through life and frankly to earn a good day almost every day. I uh, I want other people to have those skills and have those tools so that they can have better days more often than not so much. So if you found something useful and beneficial to you, please actually use it. Let me know how useful it is to you. Uh, what you found useful out of it, if you didn't find it very useful when you tried it, that's all right too. Just go ahead and let me know. Now, uh, today's topic is kind of going to be an interesting one. And we're talking about uh, something that everybody has, some people have multiple of. There's tons of variation of this. There's also generally universal forms of it as well. And I think this is something that is a pretty core motivator and driver to a lot of people when you do enough digging. Excuse me. And also it is something that a lot of people avoid, but at the same time, if we learned how to utilize it more effectively, could be a massive motivator and a massive tool and source of energy for us to get up and get things moving when otherwise we would not have a motivator that's useful for these situations. So what am I even talking about? What is something that everybody has that can either we avoid or we want to run towards and get more of? Uh, There's universal ones. There's multiples of them. You know, people have their own differences the same. Uh, That is the topic of fear. Wow, that was hard to get out there. But yes, we were talking about fear. Uh, and specifically fear as the acronym. And what I mean by that is I think t- most people have pretty uh, pretty much just two responses to fear. Now there's obviously more, but I think you can separate a lot of responses into these two main categories. And we can separate them via acronym. So the first one is the more common one. And that is acronym for fear that stands for fuck everything and run, right? So get the hell out of Dodge. Uh, The other one that is less common, but I do think is more beneficial is the acronym face everything and rise. So that is confrontation. That is using courage and bravery to face our fears and to overcome them. And you know, this, these two responses to fear make a lot of sense, not only on the psychological and the emotional level, but also on a biological level. So usually fear, no matter how we are going to respond to it, our body has a, a natural response to it. And that is, as most people know, the fight or the flight response. And the cool thing about that is it is one response for two outcomes. So whether you're going to fight, right? whether like you're going to get jumped on the street or, you know, somebody's talking mad shit about your girl and now you got to beat their ass. Or if, you know, there's a person with a gun 
and you need to get the hell out of Dodge because you're not going to beat a gun. Um, right? Either one of those, our body has the exact same response. And what's really cool about that is being in as one response for multiple outcomes, we can train our brain to lean more towards one response versus the other given the same set of starting parameters. So what are those responses? Well, generically, it is the stimulation of our sympathetic nervous system, so our fight or flight nervous system. And I think I mentioned last week, but I actually just finished a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And lately I've been hearing um, there's actually a third response. And I want to clear that up because how I had always been heard hearing about it was people saying that these are three responses in the exact same scenario. And yes, the scenario could be the same, but in terms of biology and the anatomy of where those responses takes place, they're actually almost two separate responses. And one of those is the fight or flight response is paired together. And then we have the freeze response. And that is like when essentially you just kind of give up on everything your body just goes numb. So, and I want to just clarify that for everybody. So when we have a sympathetic nervous system response, an SNS response, what's going to happen to our body? One, our eyes are going to dilate so that we can actually focus uh, more on a single topic. I know that's kind of confusing. You would think contract, but if you look at optics, the more dilated your pupil is, the more focused you are on a single object. Um, we're also going to have an increase in blood pressure as well as heart rate. Our breathing rate is going to be increased. We're going to begin to secrete and stimulate the secretion of adrenaline, also known as epinephrine, right? Not only in the brain, but also from the adrenal glands right above our kidneys. Uh, we're going to have a down regulation in digestion. So this is why people who get really, really nervous sometimes will actually throw up. And that is because if you ate too recently and then you have a really high stressful event, uh, your body can actually is actually going to go into this fight or flight response or this SNS activation. And it's going to be like, well, I can't really digest it and do all this work. So I'm just going to upchuck it so I can survive and then I'll find more food later. Uh, so that's why a lot of people will upchuck their food. We're also going to have an increase in vasodilation, so a widening and an increase in the elasticity of our blood vessels. And we are going to have an increase in the amygdala action. This is specific to fear. Now, some of you guys might hear of the amygdala as like the emotional center of the brain. That's partly accurate and more accurate description of it is our threat detection center. So this is what is filtering all the information that is coming from all of our sensory organs and neurons and passing through our hippocampus. Our amygdala is one of the next sets of filters that kind of decides, well, what does all this stuff mean? And it, essentially, it's just looking for threats or things that could be threatening and cause us to have fear or put us in danger. So essentially, we're just locked and loaded for action. Um, now, where I mentioned that we have the fight or flight, and then we have the freeze response. So those are like kind of our three responses. And I also said that they're in different parts of the brain. So where in the brain are all these places? Well, our fight or flight response, which is the main one, is actually in a separate location than the freeze response. And this is really important to know once you kind of understand brain anatomy. 
So I want to paint you guys a little bit of a picture. And I want you to imagine your brain, right? So you have the brain stem, then you got all this little wrinkly stuff on the top. And if we were to go on the very surface, like where we have all these little wrinkly, wormy looking type dealios, uh, that is what that is where what we call higher level thinking takes place, right? So this is where abstract thoughts, this is where dreams, planning, um, fine motor movements takes place, right? Balance, fine motor skills. And then the deeper in, so closer to the core or the brainstem, you can think of it, that we go in the brain, the more simplistic yet the more powerful our emotions and brain drives uh, and reactions become. So the fight or flight nervous system actually takes place in the amygdala is one of the big problems of it, but it's kind of in the middle of the brain. So it's not super deep as deep as the brainstem, which is the oldest part, uh, but it's also not in our upper level executive thinking. Uh, so it's in like the hippocampus, the amygdala, and kind of that mid section of the brain right there. And then if we go a little bit deeper into our brainstem, this is where our heart rate is controlled. This is where our breathing is controlled, our blood pressure, our circadian rhythm starts out here. Uh, so we have the medulla, the pons, and a couple other areas all in the brainstem. And so these are uh, regulating very core basic functions, right? So if you're not breathing and your heart's not beating, you're not going to live. If your body temperature is all wacky, you're going to have a screwed up metabolism. Your hormones are going to be all off. Your energy is going to be off. Like everything's going to be whack. So these are very core things that we need to live. And that's why, as we know, due to anatomy, the more the deeper into the brain they are, the more core and central to life they become. The more surface level they are, the more higher level and intricate these things become. This is also where the insult, oh, you're just being smooth-brained comes from, right? Because the higher up means the more surface area we have, which means the more connections and more complex thoughts we can create occurs. Um, and so this fight-or-flight response occurs in that mid-brain area, while the freeze response right, which actually is almost quite literally the opposite of the fight-or-flight response. It's a drop in blood pressure. It's a drop in body temperature. It's a drop in heart rate. It's a drop in breathing rate. It's a uh, focusing of the pupils. And essentially, it's putting us almost on ice, right? So this is our body's biological way. We are going through such a stressful event that it is safer for our body is deemed it is safer for us to freeze and just hope and pray that it passes soon than to try and fight it or run away. Uh, this is very common in trauma victims. This is like that deer in headlights response. Um, so somebody who's been sexually assaulted, right? Like there's a lot of people who just beat themselves up because they didn't do anything or they didn't fight back hard enough. And if anybody listening is one of those people, just know that it is not your fault, right? And that that is your body just trying to survive an immensely traumatic event. Um, that's, that's what that is as nothing to be ashamed of. That does not make you less of a person that does not make you weaker. That is simply just a general fact of biology that does not diminish you as a person. The fact that you're still fighting here and the fact that you're trying to overcome it makes you an incredibly resilient and strong person. And that's something that you should celebrate about yourself, your resiliency and your strength.
Um, so I just, and that goes for almost any trauma, right? So the more stressful it is, we kind of hit a switch and then boom, our body just shuts down because all it is trying to do is to survive and just letting it happen is deemed safer than trying to fight it or run away. Now that that is kind of taken care of, I want to go back to these two responses. So the fuck everything and run is kind of the one that I think society pushes on us. And that is, it can be a fearful response. It can also just be a response when we're uh, accomplishing or going up to do something difficult that we're not sure that we can do. And now the fear of failure is creeping in, right? Or if you've been doing something and you're kind of doing the old adage of fake it till you make it, maybe you have the fear of being an imposter, imposter syndrome, right? Or the fear that you're not good enough or the fear of success and maybe you'll become an egotistical maniac or you're actually afraid that if you are, if you do have a fear of success and you do succeed, that well now, what does the rest of your life mean, right? If you were actually this good the entire time, how does that make old you look when you weren't act living up to that potential, right? That's a real thing. Um, I think p- the society almost pushes this for the simple fact that it is the in the moment easier option because running away, and I'm not talking actual danger. If you're in legitimate danger and you are unable to protect yourself, you should probably, you should get away from that situation. If there's an active shooter, if there's somebody who's trying to harm you and you're unable to fight or you are not trained to fight, please, please, please protect yourself. Okay. Protect yourself. Use your brain. Thinks things through. Um, yeah, but that is, that is the fuck everything and run mentality, right? Like just getting the hell out of Dodge and essentially we're just trying to avoid it. It is not necessarily the more comfortable choice, although neither of them are comfortable. But in the moment, I believe that this is generally the easier choice, right? If we, if you ask most people, if given the opportunity, uh, most people would avoid and run away from difficult and or fearful situations, right? Now, the other one, face everything and rise. This is the, in the moment, more difficult choice. But I think the more often we can actually get ourselves to do this, this can become our default. This can become our choice. We can become a person who is brave. Who, When we see a challenge, instead of cowering from it and running from it and being afraid, we can actually run after that like a warrior and a battle cry and go, Aah! you know, like something wild and go into battle and fight and be brave and be courageous. All right, we all know the story of the soldier who jumps on a grenade to save the, uh, his or her brothers and sisters in arms, right? To protect their unit members. And that, you can't tell me that a person doing that is not incredibly afraid in that moment. And I think one of the greatest quotes about fear um, that I've ever heard and ever told anybody is that fear creates and gives the opportunity for courage. Fear gives us the opportunity to be courageous. And anybody in society, right, we always look up to people who are courageous, right? There's a lot of activism going on in the last two years. People who are being stepping out and being activists, right, whether you agree with them or not, they're doing something courageous. They're doing something that's brave. And while they may not tell you that they're afraid 
at some point there was some fear, right? That first time there was some hesitation. That first time there was some uneasiness. There was, there was that point where they said, hmm, how are, how are all my loved ones going to react? How are the people I care about going to react? Is everybody going to agree with me? How much you know, resistance am I going to face? But they chose instead of, in spite of that fear, in spite of that uncertainty, to act anyway. And that is a perfect example of fear gives the opportunity to be courageous. And that is a really powerful thing to be, right? And it's it's great because when we start to step into and lean into our fear and you realize that being afraid or hesitant is actually a trigger that that is somewhere that we should lean into. That is somewhere we should develop more energy and put more energy into because, well, in a literal terms of survival, that is an area that we are weak or lacking in because I think a lot of fear comes from incompetence. A lot of fear of public speaking comes from not knowing your material well enough. A lot of fear from public speaking comes from not having done it before, not being practiced, being unsure of yourself, right? A lack of confidence is a huge reason as to why people fear something. If you're in a game, if a championship game, let's say a basketball game, and you have to take the game-winning shot, and you haven't practiced it a thousand times, Kobe talks about this. He says, "When I make the game-winning shot, I'm calm about it because I've made the exact same shot thousands of times before in practice." That means even though he has all the pressure, and it's a real situation, it's not just practice. He has all the pressure and all the stakes of a championship game and the game-winning shot. He is able to maintain calmness because he's taken that shot before and put himself in as close to that scenario thousands of times before. He is very confident and competent in that skill, so much so to the point that he no longer fears it. It no longer causes him stress. He's able to just take the shot, excuse me, and to execute. And that is what you get when you continually face everything and rise. You continually face your fears and you act in defiance against them anyways, right? Like you act in pursuing your fears and not letting them pursue you regardless of the fear that you feel. And this is great because once we start to do this, this is where we get into the zone of growth, right? Growth only comes when we're uncomfortable. Growth only comes when we do something that we are not perfect at or we aren't 100% confident in, right? If you always make a free throw, you're not going to get any better. But if you continually miss a free throw, you're actually going to get better a whole lot faster. And the interesting thing is lots of people fear failure, but the reality of the situation is that failure is actually the best trigger for adaptation on a neurological level so if you fail at you know a math problem or you fail in the gym and you fail to get up a squat that trigger of failure that stimulus of failure is actually going to have a higher likelihood of causing your neurological system to adapt to be more likely to actually succeed subsequent times or if you failing or if you get rejected and going to ask somebody out, right? 
uh, that is going to trigger you to probably think, oh, what did I do this time, right? Why did she say no? Why did he say no? What can I do differently the next time to be more likely to succeed, right? How can I approach the person differently? How can I open differently? How can I fluctuate my tone of voice differently? How can my delivery be differently, right? You start asking yourself all these questions, not because you succeeded, because if you actually got the date or the number, you wouldn't ask yourself any of those questions. But because you failed and, right, that is the best stimulus to get better. So when we fear things, we actually should lean into it and push ourselves and be okay with the fact that the likelihood is that we're going to fail it. The likelihood is we're going to get rejected, right? The likelihood is that we're actually not going to succeed. But because we fail, right, and then we try again. And then we try again and fail and try again and fail and try again and fail. All those failures stacking up do a couple things. One, our body adapts remarkably quick when we do that. And two, which will actually kind of lead us into how do we overcome fears. We are exposing ourselves to the same fear, the same stimulus that causes that huge sympathetic response, that huge fear response. And the more times we do that, the less of an impact it has on us. So each time that fear response diminishes just a little bit, it might only be half a percent for the first five or 10 times, but then maybe it's two and a half percent for the next five times. And then maybe it drops by another 5% and then maybe it drops by 15 or 20% the next couple times. And then all of a sudden, you know, you just go up to and you don't even think twice, right? And then you keep doing it and now you're actually looking for little subtle nuances and ways for you to improve instead of just ways you can fail. So now that I've talked to you guys about our two responses to fear, right? Fuck everything and run, cowering away, running away, um, not chasing after the fear versus face everything and rise where we actually utilize the opportunity for bravery to stand up, to challenge ourselves, to grow and to actually get some exhilaration out of something, right? And to level up in life. Uh, I want to tell you guys a little bit of a story about my personal relationship with fear. And I'm going to tell you guys a couple stories, uh, a couple of them from when I'm a little kid, and then a couple of them from actually the last uh, two months. One was as recently as earlier this week, and even so this morning. Um, so yeah, when I was a little kid, I was not anywhere near, uh, myself now, right? I was, I was a huge mama's boy while I still am. Uh, I was afraid of a lot of things. I always went, looked to, and went to my mom for safety, right? I didn't like to push myself too much. I was always worried about what other people were going to think. And I used the first option. Whenever I was afraid, I usually said, fuck it and ran away, right? I did not face my fears. And then uh, my dad kind of comes in and this, there's two scenarios where this happened. One, we were at the rec center and I was afraid to go down the big kid slides, right? I'd gone down the little kid slides, the little tube slides, and I'd play in the pool and do all that. My dad wanted to go on the slide. And I was like, no, dad, I, I don't really want to, you know, and he could see I was scared. Uh, and, but he said, no, come on, Zach, like I'll go with you. Like, it's going to be okay. And reluctantly, I agreed. And the closer we got, 
the kind of the more anxious and the more fearful I got because I kept thinking, I was like, oh my gosh, we're so high up. Oh my gosh, I've never done this before. Oh my gosh, what if the tube flips? You know, oh my gosh, like I'm a little kid. I don't think I'm able to do this. Like I'm not big enough. I'm not good enough to do this. And we got up to the top and I remember I actually want to go back down and like say, just screw it all, right? Say fuck everything and run. Uh, but my dad didn't give me that option, right? He said, no. He said, Zach, uh, I'm pretty sure he actually called me Zachary. He said, we're going down this. He said, you already made it up here. He said, come on, I'm with you and we're going to do this. He said, you're going to be just fine. And I think I was about eight or nine at this time, was seven to nine, somewhere in there. So I wasn't like terribly young, but maybe I was younger. I don't know. Anyways, I wasn't terribly young, but I also wasn't uh, a what I would consider a big kid at all, you know, second or third grade at the time. And we went down and we went down on the tube slide first. And with every single uh, water slide, there's almost always an initial drop right away. So you can build up some speed for the rest of the slide. And until we finished that first drop, I was scared shitless. Like I think I was screaming. I was terrified. I was freaking out. And then we, if you go to the rec center, you know, you kind of go around to a turn or two and then boom, you open up and you can see outside everywhere and you go on a couple bank turns and go back into the tunnel and then one or two more turns and then boom, you're done. Well, we get through this and I realize it's actually some of the most fun experience I'd ever had at this point. Like once I got over the initial, literally the initial drop of the slide and realized that I was okay. I wasn't going to die. Right. And that, you know, this rush I'm feeling, this drop in my stomach, this increase in alertness and energy and just, oh my God. Right. Was actually kind of cool. And I was enjoying it. Right. Like we're going fast. I felt like a cool kid because I had just conquered my fear of the water slides. Right. Nobody else had to know, but I thought I was cool. And after that, like I, we went on the body slide next and I was still a little scared on that because now I wasn't with my dad. I was just alone, but I went on it and I said, I was like, you know, the, the tube slide was just as fun. Like I'm going to go down the slide. And again, I had black, I had a blast. Like, yes, I was a little scared on the initial drop, but after that absolute blast and we continue, I continued to just go down the slides for the next like two or three hours. And then we finally had to leave and my dad had to pull me off. And I was like, you know, I actually wanted him to let me keep going. Like that's, that's what the switch was. And I actually had the exact same experience with roller coasters. And you're like, well, what's the really the big difference with roller coasters? Well, one, you go up high as shit. Uh, there's a one at the Valley Fair. I think it's like 200 feet in the air. Uh, the wild thing. And then two, they're way faster, right? And three, you're not in a tube. You're literally in a cart, you know, 100, 200 feet in the air, and you're whipping around this track. And from the outside, it sure as hell looks like you could fall off at any minute, right? Uh, even though the likelihood of that is almost zero, right? Even though random accidents happens and malfunctions happen, the actual likelihood of you getting hurt on a roller coaster is Hardly anything. And I remember we were at Valley Fair and the first ride, big kid ride that I thought 
uh, it was. I went on with something called the Enterprise. It's no longer there, sadly, because it was a great ride. But it was essentially this wheel, and you sat in this cage, and then it spun you around, and you're spinning sideways, and then the wheel would slowly lift up until it was perpendicular to the ground. And the part that freaked me out wasn't the spinning. I actually loved the spinning rides, little kid rides. But it was the fact that in this cage you had no seatbelt. So me freaking out as like a 9 or 10-year-old, I was like, oh my God, Like you're going to be rattling all of this cage. You're going to get hurt, yada, yada, yada. Obviously you don't, right? Like that just doesn't happen. Uh, and we went on it. It was a blast, right? I had so much fun. Uh, and then we went on a ride called the corkscrew and this one you do flips and I was afraid cause that's the next level up. Right. And I'd never done a flip before. This was this new scary thing. Like what if I fell out? What if my seat buckle buckle broke? Right. What if it went on? What if I f- got freaked out? Like, how am I going to finish the ride? You know, can I get off? What if I don't want to do this and I'm midway through it? Like, how am I going to get out? All these questions. I did it and I was scared afterwards. I was laughing so much, and from that day on, I went on every single what I call the big kid rides there was, and we stayed there. We got there really early, like pretty close to the open, and we stayed pretty close to close, and I can't tell you how many times we went on every single ride. Steel Venom, I think we rode it about 30 times in a row before we had to leave because the park was closing, and that ride is where it literally jangles you, and you're facing straight on the ground, and then it shoots you equaling opposite uh, straight up in the air on the other end of the roller coaster and then you're facing straight up in the air right and so these being a kid you know in both of these stories I had a decision where everything in my body told me to run right everything in my body told me to get away from this yet now unironically in both of these I was not really given the choice to run away I was forced to face everything and rise. And I'm actually incredibly thankful that I was forced to do so. Because if I hadn't, I would not have a love for roller coasters. I would not have a love for uh, water slides. And I would not have a love for adrenaline and just being a crazy man like I do. Right? I've mentioned before, when me and my friends go on trips, my mom doesn't talk to my friends about being stupid. My mom talks to my friends about making sure I'm not too stupid. Because I'm the idiot that goes straight up to the edge of the cliff and looks over and goes, guys, look how far down it is. Uh." And then I'll stick a leg over and, you know, be balancing on one foot. And now one of these these days I'm probably going to fall off and that would be a sad day. Uh, But hopefully not. I mean, you never know. We'll see what happens though. But that was the old me, right? That was when I was a little kid. And lots of little kids have responses to fear like that really gets this big new scary thing they don't want to do it parents or friends pushes them to do it whether it's peer pressure whether they just muster up the braveness themselves and they do it and usually they overcome that fear if not on that time very very soon afterwards and but now i want to tell you guys about two instances where i was afraid recently and one of them was at work my old job training at My Health and Fitness in Ames. Shout out Deb. And this was in relation to the guy who is going to be taking over my clients because I moved. And so my clients wanted to continue training. So they needed a trainer to take over. And even if they didn't, Deb needed a trainer to fill my spot because she didn't want to train from 
you know, 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day. She has a couple other businesses she has to run. And so my fear in that situation was that the new guy, Colin, was going to be an absolute fuck up. I'd never met the dude before. And even the first day I did, he was really cold, uh, very off put and just didn't really say much. Kind of had a, a resting bitch face, for lack of a better term, kind of like a, a smug look on his face and was really just there observing, didn't interact. And I'm a very extroverted, free-flowing, you know, goofy person. I like to joke around with my clients. I like to have a fun atmosphere because working out's hard, right? And most people don't love the pain of working out and killing themselves like I do, so you have to make it fun and enjoyable. Part of that is just being a little goofy, right? Having a fun, easygoing environment. And, you know, I was really afraid Colin was going to be an absolute fuck-up. I was really afraid he wasn't going to be good uh, and he wasn't going to be anything and I was I was at I was at one point ready if I had made up in my mind if he wasn't good enough I was going to tell my clients to drop my health uh, or try and work with Deb or go find another gym or just follow me online right uh, because I was not willing for my clients to receive lesser quality coaching if the coach taking over was not up to my standards Right, if he was not going to exhibit the similar nuance, right, if he was not going to exhibit the same amount of care, and mm, I don't know how to put it, right, but like adaptability with clients, if he wasn't willing to exhibit that, then I wasn't going to do it. So I kind of decided, it's like, well, I have five weeks before this kid takes over, which is ironic. I call him a kid, but he's five years older than me. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm going to have to train him up, right? It, it, it's now my responsibility to make sure he is good enough before I leave, right? And if not, I'm going to have to have a conversation with Deb. Uh, but lo and behold, I left and I actually have full confidence in Colin that he is kicking ass right now. This was his, he's now going on his second week. Uh, of training here coming up and last week he tells me everything's going good he's working out the little kinks getting to know the clients all normal things and he'd actually you know he had taken over several sessions actually an entire week of them before I'd left and so I got to watch him I got to know him a lot better and we worked a lot on his training and he's grown a lot as a trainer in just five weeks but I now had, have zero concerns and zero fear that he's not going to be a good enough trainer for my clients. I actually have full confidence uh, that if he continues to grow the way he does and push himself the way he has been, that he'll actually be, be better than I am. And I really genuinely hope he is. I hope he is able to grow and push my clients further than what I was able to push them. I hope he's able to give out a better product and a better service than I was because I want my clients to have the best product and the best service that they can, right? Whether that's with me or without me, I want them to be in the best possible hands. And being I stuck to the plan and I stuck with Colin and I didn't just give up on him, I actually, within about three weeks, no longer had any fear of him taking over. And I had absolutely no fear once I saw him work with my clients, right? Once I saw him lead the sessions, I had no fear of that. But leading up to it, 
I always rate tell my clients to either go train with them or just quit altogether if he's not good enough. And thank the good Lord that I was proven wrong and that Colin proved me wrong. And because now I think my clients are going to have a great trainer. In fact, I'm very confident that they will. Uh, but another more serious set of fear and one that I'm actually still actively dealing with. Um, I believe I've mentioned on this podcast, but me and my boy Dylan, who was on the first episode of Chats with Zach, uh, have signed up to do a full-length Ironman triathlon. And what a full-length Ironman triathlon includes is 2.4 miles of swimming uh, in open water, 112 miles of biking, and a full marathon, which is 26.2 miles of running, all back-to-back-to-back. And we'll be completing this either in May or June. Excuse me. It must be for my pool workout. I'm burping still. Uh, Either in May or June of 2023. So it is now August, meaning we will have 9 to 10 months of training to prepare for this. And if you guys know me, you know that I have this (laughs) deeply rooted belief that I am negatively buoyant, right? Uh, And that I don't swim or don't float. Uh, If you ask my coach, Ms. Gust, she will tell you that that is physically impossible. And while I understand the science of that, that it is physically impossible, uh, my belief, and even though my logical brain knows it is, I still have a part of me that believes I am negatively buoyant. And with that belief... Uh, I have a very low level of confidence in my swimming ability and have actually developed a moderate fear of drowning. And I know I have a fear of drowning because I it's much harder for me to push myself uh, into extreme territory and extreme effort than it is on land. And that is because on land, to me, all it is is a little bit more pain and a little bit more effort. There's no real threat of death or really I don't have a th- belief that there's a threat of bodily harm. So I'm just able to push and to work. That is not the case when I'm in the water. So, and I've also realized this because when I get in the water and I miss a breath, uh, I start freaking out, right? All those sympathetic nervous system responses start going my heart rate beats even faster. I want to breathe even more, which doesn't really work in the water. If you want to keep swimming, uh, at least not doing a doggy paddle. And my heart rate goes faster. My blood pressure goes up. My thinking accelerates ridiculously fast. And I honestly start to freak out, right? I usually have to stop or flip on my back and just catch my breath to breathe. Because the last couple of years, I have learned to calm myself down has been through breathing, right? It is the fastest and most direct connection, direct physical connection we have to our autonomic nervous system, right? Whether we are in a parasympathetic or a chillaxing state, or if we're in a stressing out sympathetic response, right? So I have gotten very accustomed to using my breath to kind of control my state. Well, uh, that doesn't work when your face is in the water and you're having trouble breathing, and when you can't breathe and mess up your strokes, you have even more trouble breathing, right? So you guys can see where uh, 
if I mess up on a breath, it's very quickly dissolves into a frantic kick uh, and attempt at swimming or me just going over onto my back. And then even that's not so great because then water's getting in my nose. I swallow water. It's just, let's just say I have a lot of work to do in the swimming department. Uh, and I've had a total now of four water workouts in the last two weeks. One was back in Ames. One was with Ms. Gust, uh, where I first learned the proper, like, well, the extreme basics of how to swim. And then one was water confidence with my boy Dylan, which I will admit I am much, much more confident in. Uh, he used to swim competitively in high school, so he's got a large advantage. Uh, funny story on that. He, so Dylan's first day in the gym with me, we did legs, and that was two and a half years ago. He'd never done a leg day before. And since then, he's been waiting two and a half years to repeat to me what I said to him, which was, welcome to my office. And, well, I can tell you guys, Dylan definitely got that satisfaction uh, last Wednesday of saying, welcome to my office. And, yeah, I, I suffered. I suffered a lot. But I have been, I've been overcoming this fear. And I can say I definitely have made some progress in these last four workouts by by two things. One, I've been working on my actual swimming skills, right? I don't really know how to properly swim. These four workouts in the pool have been the only times I have ever swam in lap swimming, right? I've never done that before. I've messed around in pool and oceans and lakes, but... Never have I lap swum for speed and or efficiency, right? It was just to leisurely get to point A to point B. Uh, so this is, I feel like a fish out of water, although ironically I'm in water. Uh, so I don't know, maybe like a monkey in water. I'm not sure if monkeys are good in water, but I am not. So I've been dealing with this by improving my swimming technique. Now it is still moderately atrocious. Uh, Miss Gust will joke every once in a while if I can relax enough that, you know, somebody could potentially mistake me for a new swimmer. Uh, but that is, those jokes are few and far between because my good strokes are few and far between in the pool. But the other one is to, is actually two parts. It's to get myself to relax, which is proving to be relatively difficult, especially as I get more fatigued, um, and then to, to actually push myself while I'm in fear, right? So I, I have these three things it is getting better in my swimming technique. It is to try and get my body to relax, uh, by focusing on my breathing, right? And then three, it is actually to push into that fear and to try and keep swimming in spite of my franticness, in spite of my fear, and in spite of, again, every single fiber in my body wanting to get out of that pool and just say, throw in the towel and say, fuck it, I don't want to do this, right? And that, it, I can tell you guys, in only four workouts, I have actually made tremendous, what I think is tremendous progress in terms of my fear and my lack of confidence in the water. And... That's kind of what I want to lean into next, and that is, how do we actually overcome fear? Well, I've kind of come up with four main ways to overcome fear, right? And I think 
I don't think any one of them is the end-all be-all. I think to actually most completely overcome a fear, you probably have to use all four of them in some way, shape, or form. Uh, but I think starting with one of these options and then adding in a second, third, or eventually the fourth one as you go is a really good option. Uh, and so one of them is what's called exposure therapy. So therapists will use this if you're afraid of needles. Uh, they'll start by showing you a, a picture of a needle, right? And then you'll repeat that until you no longer get frightened by pictures of needles. And then eventually they will maybe play a video of somebody getting a shot or having a needle go into somebody. And then once you no longer are afraid of that or you're markedly less afraid, then they will bring a needle into the room, right? And keep it a far away from you and just let you know that it's in the room in a box and at any point, you can just say no, and they'll take it out of the room. And then they will, you know, then they will open it and take the needle out of the box and maybe hold it across from you, right? And then eventually, you will hold the needle yourself. And then when you've really overcome that fear is when you can go to the doctor's office and get a shot and not pass out or not freak out and punch the doctor, right? And you can do it like a normal person. And that is no longer a debilitating fear of yours that's called exposure therapy right so exposing yourself to it uh, starting in an extremely small fashion uh, so if this is heights it might be going up to a flight of stairs and then looking down right if it's um you know fear of public speaking maybe it's talking to two or three people or it's you know talking to that classmate that you only partially know right you've been in group once before but not more than maybe you do a small group of people you introduce yourself to or you you know you talk up at the end of a, a business meeting a class meeting and then eventually you know you walk up to a random person on the street and then you can give a presentation in front of a bunch of random people right so it's starting small and slowly building up bigger and bigger another one is and this i think has more to do with trauma is probably where it's more appropriate but digging into your past, right? So where did this fear originate from? Why do you have this fear in general? Um, there are certain things that they have discovered that people just innately have fear of, such as spiders, bugs, you know, snakes. Most people tend to have fears of, um, not everybody, but they're more common and closely considered universal fears than things like fear of heights or you know, fear of public speaking, things like that. Uh, so digging out into your past, finding out why you have this fear and then asking yourself, is it still relevant? Right? So essentially what we're trying to do is use logic to get over an emotional, uh, problem, which rarely works, but it can kind of ease that transition into it. Uh, the next one would be to work on your body's control, right? So actually being a master of your body, because at the end of the day, Fear, as much as it is a psychological response, it often starts via physical sensations, right? So it often starts by feeling our body going into that sympathetic nervous response, right? It feels, we feel our body getting heightened, our breath shortening and quickening, our heart rate speeding up, right? Uh, and our mind racing. So we feel all these thoughts and then that triggers, oh, the last time I thought this or I felt this way, I was afraid, right? I should be afraid again, pattern recognition, repetition. So if we can begin to master our body and recognize that when that happens, we can actually 
use that as a trigger to boom get into our you know breath work and get into extending our exhale so that we in keep that parasympathetic regulation higher which is going to help buffer against that sympathetic regulation right so if we take an extended exhale and boom okay now that heart rate isn't quite so scary boom now that racing thought i can control just a little bit more boom okay now my body isn't as a you know it's not racing as much boom okay now i'm actually feeling a control boom i can get some thoughts in i can be a little logical boom okay you know hey now i'm actually not so afraid anymore it's so just getting it in control of our body and being physically competent can give us a lot of confidence so that when we just feel those sensations, they might not trigger us to have such a high degree of an alarm system, right? And then the last one, I think this is also very important, is just to face it fully head on, right? Uh, depending on what it is. I think just, you know, for lack of a better term, going at it cold turkey is can be a really good thing. Uh, instead of just dipping your toe in, why not just dump straight in, jump straight into the deep end? You know, obviously set up uh, contingency plans in case something goes wrong. Like if you're going to be stupid, guys, please be smart about it. But I know for me, it's more effective if I just jump and go straight after it than if I try to slowly walk in. Because if I slowly walk in, my mind will start to cheat and say, oh, you don't need to go any further. Uh, you know, you, you can slow this down. But if I jump in, almost always, just like the roller coaster, after about, you know, half a second of fear, I'm going to realize, you know, I, I was just being a wuss before. This really isn't bad. You know, I can I can do this. There's no reason for me to be freaking out right now. And so that's kind of, I think, a lot of ways that we can, four ways that we can start to utilize to overcome our fears and eventually actually intermingling and interusing all of them to overcome our fears until maybe it's actually a strength of yours. Maybe you actually begin to master that fear. Like I hope by the time I swim this Ironman, I have absolutely zero fear of the water. I have zero fear of drowning and I can actually be kind of a badass in the pool. I mean, hell, swimming two and a half miles in open water to me is a pretty badass trait. So I will be there when I complete this Ironman triathlon. Uh, it's just going to take me a little bit of work to get there. So, guys, that is this the end of the episode. Wow, I did not mean to go just over an hour, um, but this was a really dense topic, and I wanted to make sure I did it justice. So, with that, guys, my call to action for you today is to not just take one step towards getting over your fears, but actually taking two steps, and that could be... They could be the smallest steps you could ever take. They could be the biggest steps you could ever take. But when it comes to fear, guys, I think this is something that we need to prove to ourselves that we are badasses. And because we are stronger, more resilient, and capable of so much more than we think or believe is possible, sometimes we just need to prove to ourselves again that that is possible. We are a badass. We are that strong. We are that resilient. We are that courageous. We are that brave. Right? We can't do that thing that's been holding us back. And so that's why I want you guys to not, not just take one step this week, but I want you to take two steps in overcoming your fear. And with that, guys, go out, kick some butt today, and more importantly than all, earn your good day. All right, y'all. Peace.